Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Here once again with Dr. Peter Openshaw about COVID-19. If you remember a year ago today, pretty much, we had Peter on. This was the very beginning a year ago of all the worries and anxieties and fears and deaths from the coronavirus, which has since, of course, changed the entire planet. And Peter gave his expertise. Dr. Peter Openshaw is at Imperial College. He's a viral immunologist, also the vice chair of the Pandemic Scanning Committee for England. Uh, It's the new and emerging respiratory virus threats advisory group. You've been working on pandemic planning and research since 1985. You worked on SARS. What kind of work specifically... uh, other than coming on my podcast a year ago, what kind of work specifically have you been doing this past year on on COVID? So I'm one of the three co-leads on a very big UK study, which is called the Isaric 4C study, <laughs> which is basically... I always like the marketing, that the, the branding of sciences. It's very good to know. Yeah, I, and I can't even remember exactly what Isaric 4C stands for. But basically, it's one of the largest studies in the world which has collected clinical information and all the laboratory information we can about over 180,000 hospital admissions to NHS hospitals. So more than 200 hospitals in the UK have contributed patients to this study. And it's been a really important study in being able to give daily updates to the healthcare planners in, in the United Kingdom. And also we've got a vast amount of biological material from these patients, which means that we can study in detail why they're getting sick and watch them as they recover. So it gives a lot of information about the virus, about the host immune response, about how the disease develops, how it resolves. It's an absolute goldmine of information, uh, which allows us to really, really chart this virus and how it's behaving. I definitely want to talk about that. I want to talk about, obviously, the vaccines and new strains and and what's gone on in terms of other things around the virus. But I just want to mention how last year, I've quoted you a lot in this past year because when we did have our discussion a year ago, one of the things that really impressed me was you're like the only person I spoke to who basically said there are a lot of things we don't know. Like everyone and their brother became a closet epidemiologist on Twitter, and they were all experts. But 
It's funny we contacted each other today because I look back at the article I wrote a year ago about our interview and we didn't know truly what the fatality rate was going to be. We didn't know how many people would be exposed and, and how many people would get the sickness. We didn't know anything about immunity, whether immunity would occur or not when you got it. We didn't know if lockdowns would work and related things. And to some extent, we didn't really know these things fully throughout the entire past year. Like, what would you say, just as a summary, what do you say would, do we know now? We know an awful lot <laughs> about, about this coronavirus. I think it's extraordinary how every scientist, every research facility, every research group around the world seems to have somehow reorientated their research to coronavirus one way or another. People who've never been interested in, in viruses at all have suddenly found um, that their, their research actually has something to bring to bear. I, I mean, we've learned a lot about how it spreads, how it's transmitted. We know a lot about how we defend against it. And I think what's particularly stunning is that we've now got a, quite a range of different vaccines, several of which seem highly effective at preventing infection. And I don't think we could have anticipated that. I mean, we knew that we were going to try and make vaccines, but it was a long shot. You know, we've never had a vaccine that works for any human coronavirus disease before. And now we've got, you know, a good handful of vaccines which are stunningly effective. So that's, that's remarkable. Well, I, I can't wait to talk about the vaccine. I have a bunch of questions yeah. about that. But I want to start with the first thing you just mentioned, which is how is this transmitted like what we didn't really know anything before like if, if you were just if you pass someone in the street we thought maybe you could transmit it like what's what's kind of the tipping point where probably one a person who has it's going to transmit it to another person because still it does it is a very contagious disease yeah very contagious and some of the new variants are more contagious than the uh, the archetypal original that we that we first saw spreading around the world. So the new variant that brewed up in North Kent, the B1.1.7, snappy name. So that one um, is more transmissible by a factor of maybe 1.5 to 1.7. And that may not sound very much, but if you think that it's a sort of amplifying logarithmic sequence, yeah. then within a few reproduction cycles, that advantage translates into a very large number uh, more cases than the previous um, the previous strains which were less transmissible like how right now like my my kids had uh covid but robin and i did not get it hmm. fortunately we were kind of just wondering why we didn't get it like and we were totally exposed the same way they were and you know then we were around them all the time because they quarantined with us and we were quarantining as well and so this led us to thinking like, well, why didn't we get it? Why do some people get it? What, what helps prevent it? And so on. Yeah, it's still a big puzzle within households. Why some people get it and some people don't. There's a big study going on at Imperial College, actually, where people are being traced as soon as they've been identified as cases. We go into the household and we study everyone who lives in the same household with the person who's been uh, found to be positive. That allows the investigators to look at all of the household contacts. And, you know, it's only something like a quarter of people in a household living together who then become infected. So it's a really big question why some other people don't get infected. And I think that's every bit as important as why some people do get infected. 
you know, you would think that this virus would be able to just spread to everyone uh, because nobody has antibodies. I've heard theories like blood type. I've heard theories like someone takes vitamin D pills or zinc or magnesium or vitamin C or anything else. I don't even know what else. Is there any kind of preventative stuff if somebody in your household uh, gets it? Or, or is it just this fact that nobody's coughing on us that we don't get it? I think there's a lot of pretty odd ideas out there, actually, about what it might be that prevents. I mean, I think it's reasonable maybe to take vitamin D because that's recommended in, in our rather dreary winters that we should take a vitamin D supplement. So that's sort of uncontroversial. Whether it actually does any good is, is controversial actually, in this particular case. I mean, I think washing your hands within a household may be very important. It could be that, uh, that actually we forget to wash our hands, we forget to really prevent transmission within households because we sort of trust each other. Um, and so you don't do the normal things that you would do to try to cut down infection. So wearing a mask as well, particularly with these more transmissible ones, it looks like maybe what mask wearing is even more important but there's no doubt now that masks do prevent transmission. And you know, it's, and to my mind, that the mask wearing prevents transmission largely because of spittle. Because we know now that the virus is present in your oral secretions. In, um, so when you're talking and your lips are moving and your tongue's moving within your mouth and you're emitting little particles of spittle, those particles have got quite a lot of virus in. So it's not just being transmitted by coughs and sneezes, uh, the classic you know, way in which common colds are meant to transmit. It's actually uh, high levels of virus in your, in your saliva, um, in your oral fluids, which is, which is a really, really important discovery, I think. And so um, like if two people are in an elevator together, they're both wearing masks, one person ends up having COVID, should the other person be concerned, for instance? Well, uh, if both have been exposed, then you should be concerned. But what are you going to do about it? I mean, I think you have to have taken that preventative action, which is to reduce the duration of contact and, and wear a mask and wash your hands and use uh, sterilizing hand gel. You know, these, these are the proven measure, measures which really do reduce transmission and which are so important. But also perhaps a genetic variation. You know, we've, uh, we had a really nice paper in Nature a few months ago, um, which came out of this wonderful Isaric 4C study, which I mentioned at the beginning. And that paper identifies you know, three new genetic variants that may be present in you or in me that determine how severe the disease is. They don't necessarily determine whether you get infected in the first place, but there will be genetic variants which are present in the normal population, which explain some of this variability in transmission. I'm sure of that. You mean, you mean something in my DNA or your DNA or anybody's DNA could reduce the effect of the virus inside your body? Because of what the DNA encodes, which is proteins. So you, you may have some protein receptors, for example, in your nose and lung, which are subtly different from the protein receptors in my nose and lung. Some of them may be better at binding virus, other may be worse at binding virus. So there's bound to be variations like that that could possibly account for whether you get infected or I get infected if we're both standing in an elevator together and there's, uh, there's somebody you know, singing or talking loudly and emitting particles of spittle that may settle in both of our respiratory tracts. 
so, so potentially that suggests like with genomics and, and gene editing, like CRISPR style editing, if we find the right gene variants that can be flipped on and off, that could be another way of preventing the disease. That sounds very high tech. I, I would just wear a mask and wash your hands and <laughs> use hand gel. <laughs> I think those are much, much more likely than that we will be going editing our genome, which is a pretty long way around trying to stop ourselves getting infected with a virus. And we'll probably make ourselves susceptible to some other virus if we try a trick like that. I'd just stick to the sensible stuff. Now, I, I've heard, re like, so I don't know how many people around the world have gotten it. Let's say reported is at least in the US, something like 25 million people have gotten it, but unreported, they're thinking maybe four or five times as many. So making us close, at least in the US, to some sort of basic herd immunity. Um, so many people have gotten it. And, and what, what do you think is the actual fatality rate of the virus at this point? So of the cases that are identified, it's, it is around 1%. So that's very high. That's a very high fatality rate. It's not as bad as the original um, SARS back in 2002. I mean, that was, that was about 10% of the cases actually died. Wow. Um, so that, that was really bad. So it's less lethal, but it's much more transmissible than the original SARS variety that, uh, that was interrupted by public health measures. And it's much higher. It's about maybe seven to tenfold more severe than, in, than influenza, than normal, regular influenza. But, but that's on the reported cases, though. What, what do you think is the, is the factor of unreported cases to reported cases, or asymptomatic cases where people never know? Yeah. So, well, in big studies that are now just being reported, about one-third of all um, cases of infection are asymptomatic. So two-thirds are symptomatic. These, these are big prospective studies in you know, thousands of healthcare workers who are being swabbed regularly um, in a prospective manner. So you, know, you can really look at how many infections are occurring, what proportion are symptomatic. So it's about two-thirds symptomatic, one-third not symptomatic. So does that reduce the fatality rate? Like there's an official fatality rate based on cases reported and in cases we know about. But do you think the fatality rate could be lower than 1% because of so many asymptomatic cases? Yeah. So, well, if you want to include the asymptomatic cases, then that will reduce it down, down by about um, to about two thirds of that. But, but I think, you know, normally you look at the number of, uh, of cases of disease, cases of COVID-19, which are the symptomatic cases, and of those, about 1% are fatal. And uh, I guess the, the basic question is, if you have... If you've had the virus, do we know the level by which you can um, get it again? Yeah, so there's been a huge number of studies about reinfection. Um, so reinfection definitely does occur. We know that. We've, there are very well, uh, well demonstrated events of, uh, which confirm reinfection. How common it is, it's pretty rare actually. So natural immunity after infection, after really properly confirmed infection, gives you pretty good immunity for at least six months, we think, possibly for considerably longer. But you know, we're, obviously the virus has only been circulating in, in the human population for less than a year. So we, we don't really know just how long lived that protection is, but it's pretty good um, and doesn't seem to be drifting downwards in the way that we feared at first. So you know, I think a, 
an immune response triggered by infection is going to give some pretty good protection against reinfection for most of us um, for a, a considerable period. And, um, uh, you know, these new strains, like if you had COVID from an earlier strain, are, are you, is it possible, does it give you the same type of immunity against new strains or are you completely open to getting it from new strains? That, that is the really, the big worry is that these new variants that are emerging are genetic um, evolutionary variants that have been driven by, um, by pressures initially of transmissibility, but then subsequently will be driven by pressures of host immune responses. So the new variant, the Kentish variant, the B1.1.7 variant, which we referred to before, that one is more transmissible and it's a spontaneous mutation which just has the advantage over the progenitor of the original strain and so outcompetes it and it grows faster and it is basically just displaced the other variants and has become the dominant variant in various parts of the world where it has managed to spread, including not only the UK, but also Israel, for example. It's more contagious, but I remember a year ago you told me if the virus mutates into a more contagious version, it's also quite likely it'll be less lethal because that's why it's more contagious, because more people are living with it so they can more people can spread it. That's a, that, yeah, that's a theory, but we're going to be able to watch that in real time. I think the concern now with mounting levels of immunity, either because of previous infection or because of vaccination, that instead of transmissibility being the main driver to, uh, to mutation and evolution of the virus, the main drivers are going to become uh, the host immune response. So it's going to become very advantageous for new strains to emerge that, in, that evade the previous um, immune response that was mounted, and therefore we'll have to adapt the vaccines to uh, to match the new circulating strains. Um, and you know, it is going to be a little bit of catch up that we're going to have to play with uh, with the vaccine um, refinements. Why do some people, and we touched upon this a little already, but why do some people seem to have very odd responses? Like it's not just a spectrum of how bad your respiratory issues are, and then at the extreme end is asymptomatic, and at the other extreme end is death. It seems like from, again, this is just um, what I've heard, so it may or may not be true, but it seems like this virus attacks different organs. So mm. here are all sorts of anecdotes, like one person gets paralyzed or all sorts of weird, you know, some people lose their sense of smell forever, maybe. Some people don't lose it at all. Like what's, what, what are these range of responses? Mm. I think that's another thing we've learned since we last spoke, James, is that this virus is a very nasty virus with a real sting in its tail. It's not just a respiratory virus, which transmits like flu um, and, then, and then goes away. This one has got these very curious complications, a lot of which are due to inflammation of the lining of the blood vessels and then clotting um, problems. And it also gets into your kidneys, into your liver, into your brain, in some people, and can cause quite uh, quite severe long-term complications. You know, we're, we're just publishing a paper very shortly um, on these other long-term complications, which really emphasize that a lot of people who've had um, COVID do have uh, prolonged um, health problems and often can't go back to normal activities and return to work. 
you know, it takes a long time to recover because of all these complications which are affecting other organs in your body. So it is, it is a real, it is a real worry. But how, how um, common is that that there's prolonged or, or, you know, long-term effects versus just you have it. And then you like, like for instance, with my kids, as far as we could tell, they had it, they were basically asymptomatic and they were, they were done with it. Although some kept testing positive for a very long time and some immediately stopped testing positive. Hmm. So it depends how, how long you follow up for, because it do, people do get better over time generally, but it's something like 10% at three months, 10% of people will, will still have significant health problems at three months. And there will be, you know, a proportion, maybe, I don't know, 2% of people who just even at a year um, have not fully recovered. So that's a, that's a lot of people. It's, you know, there's going to be more people who have, have long-term disability than actually who die, maybe by a, a factor of two to one. Now, obviously, when we first spoke about this, we had no clue about medicines or anything. But if I were to get it today, what would be your prescription for me? You know, and I know this is informal. You're not really giving medical right. advice. Yeah, yeah. I'm not giving specific personal advice. Yes. But, but generally, I mean, there are some really good proven treatments. And more importantly, or as importantly, a lot of things that we thought would have been helpful have been proven not to be helpful. So we can stop giving them and, and people won't suffer from the adverse effects of taking those unnecessary medications. So I think you know, to run through from the early stage to the late stage, in the very earliest stage, I do think that the studies are showing that passive antibody therapy, whether it's convalescent plasma or, or monoclonals, if those are given very early in the first, uh, first three days of symptoms to high-risk people, they will prevent people from going on to develop more serious disease. But that isn't going to be for everyone but that is a potential therapy which can work early in disease. And, and what is that therapy? Is that a prescription therapy or is that an antibiotic or? No, it would, be an, it would be an intravenous infusion of antibody or possibly an intramuscular injection of, of an antibody grown up in the lab. So, you know, I think that's the most likely way in which those antibody therapies are going to be effective. I know it was very widespread use of antibody therapy in advanced disease in the United States, um, but actually the trials are showing that that wasn't really beneficial because it was being given too late. So that works if you, if you start really early. If you then um, take, take the situation of more severe and advanced disease, people who are going into hospital and got low oxygen levels, once you get to that stage, then it's proven that um, steroid therapy, same sort of steroids you get if you have an, uh, an attack of asthma, you know, the, um, the oral steroids um, do actually reduce the need for intensive care and they reduce the mortality very significantly. So that was proven by very large studies which were conducted in the UK in a trial called the recovery trial, which was, which was run out of Oxford. Um, so steroids definitely do work, but only for those people with more advanced disease. If you get, wait until you get more advanced still, people in intensive care, at that, in that stage, then blocking something called interleukin-6 um, is effective. Again, you know, on top of the steroids, that's using a drug called tocilizumab, which you may possibly have heard of. 
So we've got three therapies, the antibodies therapy right at the start, then you've got the steroids, and then you've got the tocilizumab, the um, IL-6 blocker. So three drugs working at different stages, all of them with immunological effects. Are, are there any um, prescription drugs? Like I know when, I, I remember at one point Robin thought she had it and a couple of doctors actually did prescribe some medicine she picked up at the pharmacy. Are there any prescription drugs that one could take or we don't really know? No, I mean, you could use acetaminophen for controlling fever. Um, I mean, there's a lot of discussion over remdesivir. <laughs> Um, that that is an antiviral drug, but actually the 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 World Health Organization has looked at all the trials now and has said that that isn't actually a value for people with COVID nineteen. What what about Regneron that I think Boris Johnson took or Donald Trump took? One of them took, both of them took. I don't know. Yeah. So I mean, they, a lot of things that people thought would be helpful have been proven not to be helpful. So, you know, I think we need to look at the clinical trial data, not just whether something seems rational or not. You have to look at the clinical trial data and, and it's those drugs that I've mentioned, which are the effective ones. And, you know, the things like the um, ivermectin, you know, that, that's, in, that's an anti-worm treatment, <laughs> uh, which is widely uh, promoted for treatment of COVID. It might work, but I haven't actually seen the conclusive clinical trial data that actually says that it does work. So at the moment, I would stick to the ones that have actually been tried in clinical trials. The only worry with that is, is that all of them seem to involve a hospital visit, which I, I don't know anybody, unless you have real severe symptoms, who goes to the hospital or is recommended to go to the hospital when they get just diagnosed. So if you just get diagnosed, I could see, you know, you, you know Tylenol to reduce fever, but um, what, what else can one do uh, that, that we think is effective? Yeah, I think just ordinary, ordinary supportive therapy, you know, fluids and, and Tylenol, that seems fine. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people just get better and you don't need to do anything too sophisticated and you don't need expensive drugs. Um, you know, people will get better mostly. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people 
who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims. Dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. 
See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Are there any mysteries in terms of like some populations that don't seem to get it at all or have a very low infection rate and vice versa, you know, some populations that have a high infection rate and and related to this, there does seem to be some countries like New Zealand, which eliminated it, had a total lockdown still, and then it reoccurred, even though they had a total lockdown and had seemed to eliminate it. Mm. Are there any information from either of any of those questions? Well, I mean, the reason that they've managed to eliminate it from Australia and from New Zealand is that they've got extraordinary draconian measures, as they do have in some in mainland China. You know, so if you can introduce those sort of measures and people agree with it and go along with it, um, then you can actually get rid of the virus. I mean, if the whole world, if everyone in the whole world now stopped talking to each other and locked themselves away in the room for two weeks, now, this virus would disappear. There, it, <laughs> you know, it would be gone. The fact is, we're not prepared to do that, and that's why it's continued to spread in in Western democratic countries and and in many other countries around the world. So, um, related to that, you have countries like the U.S., U.K., all, all of Europe, really, South America, where we did have lockdowns, we did have things like social distancing and contact tracing and masks and all of that and we close down businesses, but it doesn't really seem to have done much. Like, what do you, th- what do you think is the percentage effect in the UK mm-hmm. of, of the, the laws taken? Like, what's the difference between the original approach of let's just go for herd immunity and then the later lockdowns? Do you think, do you think it was effective? There is no doubt that the measures that have been introduced in terms of social distancing and mask wearing and washing hands and so on. It does work. It actually does work. But people have to do it. And there are people who are really not prepared to do it. And people who try and get around it and think it's a bit of a game. Or people who can't do it because they have to work. And they're not being compensated for their loss of time at work. And they're only paid for the hours they actually put in. So, you know, under those circumstances, it's very hard to actually obey all the rules but if the rules are obeyed, this virus doesn't transmit. You know, we do know how it's transmitted and we know what we need to do to stop it. And it's in proportion to the degree to which people subject themselves to those, those rules that prevent transmission that we do see a decline in numbers. And that's what we've seen in the UK in recent uh, weeks. We've seen a very sharp decline in cases because people are actually obeying lockdown to a large extent. And and people, a lot of people are worried about flying. Does flying in, have increased risk, or 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 not that mu- as much risk as we thought? Or well, it's it's not flying, of course. It, the risk is being confined in an enclosed space and breathing each other's air. So, you know, there isn't anything intrinsic about actually flying itself, but it's everything associated with flying, like you know, queuing up and being crowded into departure halls and all the rest of it. You know, that's, that's what causes the transmission. And of course, it spreads it around the world. So you know, if you fly into New Zealand then, or into Australia, then you will be in two weeks of quarantine under government regulated rules, and you will not be allowed out of your room at all. And there are police and military guards posted around the place, and they actually 
will not let you out. So you're basically imprisoned uh, within regulated hotel spaces for two weeks. And that's the way you can stop transmission. I mean, even though that's, I mean, just, just, just thinking about this, the way, the way you even say it is like, it almost seems scary. Like it, it feels a little 1984-ish, even though I realize we're balancing a deadly pandemic with, um, you know, economic hardship and all the, you know, downsides related to that. What do you think? Like, do you, do you think it should be personal? I guess you can't make it just personal responsibility because we all affect each other. Mm. I don't really know the right balance. It's very, it's a really complicated balance, isn't it? I mean, people sometimes have said to me, you know, all of these measures really are to preserve the lives of old people who are going to die anyway. And the people who are bearing the brunt of the consequences of lockdown are young, economically active, fit people who are prevented from going about their daily lives for a benefit that is not personal. To my mind, it is a public duty to do everything you can to reduce transmission in order to reduce the mortality, because this is a really, really nasty virus. And it's horrible to see people dying of it, being asphyxiated by the respiratory failure, which is caused by this virus, or having strokes or blood clots or heart attacks. You know, it's a really horrible virus and, you know, we wouldn't wish to inflict it on anyone. And so I think it's completely justified to bring in these quite draconian measures as a public health measure. And now with these new vaccines, and it's been amazing how creative the scientists and pharmaceutical companies and everybody has. I mean, some of these vaccines are like, I guess, traditional ones where they take a dead version of the virus and inject it in you. And some are these uh, mRNA, like gene edited viruses that help, you know, boost your system to, to create antibodies, I guess, for, for the, the, I don't know all the science, obviously, but like, what's, what do you think is the future of the virus given these vaccines and, and how often will we need to take them and, and so on? Well, I mean, there are, I guess, two possible future scenarios. One is that we manage to make vaccines and roll them out globally. And these vaccines that can be made will be effective against all future variants, in which case there is a possibility that we could eliminate this from the globe by a mixture of public health measures and vaccination. I think that's a bit unlikely. I think it's much more likely <coughs> that this virus is going to become what we call endemic. In other words, it will become one of the common cold viruses that comes back every winter and can then cause coughs and colds and, and respiratory problems and you know, other complications. It's going to be amongst the differential diagnosis of people who come in with respiratory problems in the winter. You think we'll need to take a vaccine every year? I think it's quite likely. It could be that we only need to be vaccinated every three or four or five years. But I think that it's quite likely that we're going to be having regular uh, vaccine updates, uh, just like we do for influenza. And that in future years, we will have combined shots which prevent coronavirus and which prevent influenza. Oh, that's interesting. And have we had any more insights into how this virus happened? Like, I know we discussed a year ago the possibility that it had been man-made. You, you discounted that. And I think that's still the, the theory is that it's, it's, it was a natural virus. Does it, do people still think it went from like a bat to a pangolin to a human? Or what's the, how yeah. did we get this? I think there's little doubt that the, the closest relatives are actually bat viruses. Um, 
<clears throat> whether it went via a pangolin, I'm not sure I really care. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the origin probably is a bat virus, and it's perfectly understandable that it may mutate in order to find a new host species. You know, it's what viruses do. They mutate all the time, and their survival depends on finding new hosts in which they can multiply. So, you know, it's just doing what it's what it does. And you still believe, and I, I believe as well, but there's a lot of conspiracy theories that it was man-made, that it's biological warfare. You're pretty convinced that that's not true. I am, because, I mean, if you were going to sit back and, you know, try to design um, modifications to these viruses that we know are out there in order to, you know, weaponize them, you would do them in very different ways from the way in which this virus has mutated. You know, looking at the genetic mutations, you think, oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. You know, these aren't the mutations that you would put in deliberately in order to make it a human virus. It's just spontaneous mutations which have come about in its transitioning from bats into humans. Do you think that the world is more, because of, you know, global commerce and, I don't know, maybe changes in climate for whatever reason, do you think the world is more susceptible now to these kinds of pandemics occurring more frequently? Yeah, that's a, I think that's, that's inevitable that with globalization, with rapid travel, with increasing crowding into cities and with pressure on the rural environment and um, animal species coming into close contact with humans at an increasing rate, I think that we all accept that all of these factors do favor an increasing frequency of pandemics. And and what am I what am I missing here? Like, are there any new discoveries that have have amazed you, or or you know changed your views on you know where this is heading, or or any new thoughts or theories about what we should be doing, or how we should be treating ourselves? I think we've learned so much. I mean, uh, there's a. F uh, I can thinking back over the past year. There's a few key moments when you know a light bulb went on, and I thought, ah, that changes the way I think about it. One of them was a study from Yale University where they showed that the virus was more abundant in spittle than it is in nasal secretions, and that changed my views quite, almost overnight about whether we should be wearing cloth covering, covering masks and that whether we might be getting transmission from particles of spittle that you emit during talking and singing and so on. It all suddenly fitted together to explain why we were getting such big outbreaks amongst people who were doing choir practice or singing in churches together. You know, all of that fitted. I think the other big moment was when we saw this, this emergence of this major variant which is more transmissible, this Kentish variant, the, the one which has spread in the UK and now in other countries. And the occurrence of these variants really changed the way in which we are thinking because we thought that actually we, we had this virus pretty well locked down and that we could control it. But now seeing all this variation, I think you know it's with us for a while now and we're going to have to keep updating the vaccines and, and moving with it. So, so Peter, this has been has been great. Um, I just want to summarize one more time. Like, if if you think you have it, um, or if, or if you've been diagnosed with it, and and you maybe have early symptoms or you don't have symptoms yet, is there anything again at home that someone can do to be 
precautious about the virus getting worse or, or maybe in an ideal case, the virus going away quicker? Like, what can we do at home? Because again, most people just don't go to the hospital if they have a mild case. Mm. You know, I think that's quite right. And you shouldn't go to hospital if you have a mild case. We know a lot of it is mild, especially amongst young people. And uh, most people, most young people will just get better anyway. So there's no need to go to a hospital and just ordinary, uh, you know, acetaminophen treatment and to bring down the fever, keep up the fluids, you know, and just wait for it to get better. I mean, the, the times when you really do need to go to the hospital is if you're if your oxygen saturation is getting very low. Um, so, you know, I think it's quite useful actually to have a thermometer at home so you can take your temperature. And also one of these relatively inexpensive but properly certified medical devices where you can measure the oxygen concentration from putting your finger into this device, the little devices which fit in your pocket. And I think those are quite useful actually to have because it tells you if the oxygen level is getting low in your blood, and that may mean that you need hospital treatment. Um, the fatality rate of people going to the hospital must be a lot better because originally they just throw people on a ventilator, they didn't have any medicines, and people were dying. Is the fatality rate much better of people entering the hospital? Yeah, there's a huge improvement. When we last spoke a year ago, the hospital fatality rate in the UK was over 30%. So about a third of people coming into hospital were dying. It's now about um, 12%. So that's a huge improvement. And I think that's partly because of these new treatments that have been shown to be effective, particularly steroids, but lots and lots and lots of other little things that we found help get people through it. You know, this thing called proning, where you actually turn people over onto their fronts um, in order to move more air into different parts of the lung. All those other things that we found help survival mean that you're much more likely to survive now if you do go into hospital, if you need hospital treatment. Is it okay for restaurants to be open? I think there are ways in which restaurants can open safely. And I think it's, it's uh, I really do feel very sorry indeed for restaurateurs who've made so many improvements to their restaurants to prevent transmission and yet they're being kept closed. So we know that uh, outdoor dining is much safer than indoor dining. So good ventilation, wearing of masks where at all times when you can obviously you can't while you're eating and drinking but at other times and lots of hand cleaning and so on and spacing between tables you know i think there are ways in which restaurants can be open and can be safe but it's a, it's a it's very 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 it's terrible for all the businesses that have suffered through this but i would make the point that if you look internationally the countries that lock down hardest actually have the greatest prosperity, um, the greatest growth rates are, are being seen in those countries that did actually lock down hard and did everything they could to transmit disease. So it's not a, a trade-off. Well, well, Peter, once again, thank you so much for providing your expertise and knowledge on this to give a coherent update and one that is not just random opinions all over social media. I have one more question, which is a real basic question. But you mentioned taking, uh, you know, Tylenol or acetaminophen to um, reduce fever. Should one reduce fever or does fever help kill the virus? Yeah, very good question. I mean, there haven't been any good studies on this with COVID, but there have been with, um, with infection with rhinovirus, one of the causes of common colds. And actually, if you really aggressively bring down the fever, um, the infection can actually last longer. So fever is a useful 
reaction to try and defeat viruses. So total suppression of fever is actually possibly means that the infection will last for longer. And then given that there's vaccines for the coronavirus and that the, a lot of the common colds are, are variations of a coronavirus, can we hope for a vaccine for the common cold? Yeah. So about 15% of common colds are caused by other coronaviruses, these mild common cold coronaviruses. And it may well be that there will be vaccines now in the future, which we've learned to develop through this pandemic, that will actually help to defeat other common viruses, including the common cold viruses caused by other coronaviruses, but also other viruses that cause common colds like RSV and um, adenovirus and maybe rhinovirus. You know, there will be a lot of benefits from all of the investment in vaccine development, which has gone on in the past year. Well, again, Peter, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You have been, for me, at least the voice of reason that I always remember our conversation a year ago and, and how much common sense you had about this even before anybody knew what was going on. And so I really appreciate you taking the time and, and thank you for coming on the, the James Altucher Show. It's a pleasure, James. So once again, Peter Openshaw, viral immunologist, professor at Imperial College, vice chair of the Pandemic Scanning Committee of the UK. We've been studying this stuff since 1985. And let's talk again soon as it's not going away. Thank you, James. Best of luck. Thank you. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.